So who is the person who has chosen Vuti Matlasela's weeping as the way to start his hour with us today here on SAFM? I thought he was in Washington, D.C., but rumor has it he whipped from Washington, D.C., landed in London, and went directly to see a Rolling Stone concert, which kind of makes me want to laugh, given that we were playing Marian Faithful a little earlier on in the show. His name is Mike Jaber. He started out his... Uh, uh, adult life as and his career as the president of the Student Representative Council at the University of Pretoria. He went on to become a CMO of CompuTicket. He worked at Ogilvy. He then became vice president of marketing for Levi Strauss and Co. in Europe, and that's a fascinating story. He came back to South Africa and founded something called Brands Rock, which was a brand solutions company. And then he uh, remained involved but decided to kind of shift his career and he started something called the Billy Bow Group. He also um, sits on a variety of billboards. He currently serves as the chairperson for PSI Health Services in South Africa. He's also the chairperson of Quicket. He's an advisory board member at three startups. He's passionate about mentorship. And he's a trustee of the WWF. Where he finds the time, no one knows because that has to have a diary of massive, massive <laughs> engagement. Mike Jaber, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. That's probably the most eloquent introduction I've ever had from anyone. Well, I don't know about eloquent, but it's about as long as my arm and my leg <laughs> as well. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I wouldn't so, know. I don't know how long your leg is. <laughs> uh, it's a long leg, pal. Mike, let's you you yes. just went you just popped over to the UK um on your way back from Washington. That's it. To I, check out the Rolling Stones. Nah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was a, it was a luck, Michelle. I was in Washington for for PSI Global Board meetings and decided on the way back to stop over in London. My my daughter's studying her master's degree here, and I managed to get my hands on two tickets. And so Catherine and I went and saw the Rolling Stones live at Hyde Park last night. Yeah, and I cannot even begin to tell you what an experience it was. It was and awesome. We do have to ask. I mean, there's old Mick who's in his uh, mid-70s by now, and maybe even a little older, did he just pull out all the stops? He did, as, as did uh, Keith and, and Ronnie. You know, sadly, Charlie Watts isn't with them anymore, but, yeah. but it was such an, an amazing show. I, I cannot believe that, especially Mick Jagger, can still run and strut around as he does at <laughs> almost 80. No, he, he was just phenomenal. Nothing wrong with the voice. <laughs> You know, he's as thin as a racing snake, not an ounce of fat on him. And it was just, it was one of those bucket list items. Uh, so I, I've run out of adjectives. You've ticked that one off. Mike, you are I somebody have. who really, I mean, as we mentioned, you've really been and involved yourself in so many different aspects of the marketing world. And I, I want to, yeah. I would, if I may, like to just look yeah. at the... Um, the Levi's project, because that in so many ways was something which broke the mold of how we look at advertising in this world, particularly during um, the time of COVID and uh, not COVID, what am I say, HIV and AIDS. Yeah. You guys <laughs> yes. really shifted the game dramatically. Talk to us about that and why that was important. 
Michelle, well, for starters, the Levi Strauss company, you know, it was founded in 1853 and, and it's always been driven by strong values, uh, whether it was equal rights, civil rights in America. It was the first um, company of note to identify and acknowledge that HIV was, was a problem in 1982 already. And so that legacy of caring and understanding and advocacy was carried into Levi Strauss South Africa. And so I had the privilege of, of leading a team in South Africa where we added the voice of the Levi's brand to creating awareness, um, pushing advocacy, and also uh, assisting local NGOs with voluntary counseling and testing at the time. And what we did, which worked out in the end really well, is we, we took South African music or music as a catalyst to create that awareness. You know, we had multiple Levi's uh, HIV concerts, where we had probably the best ambassador that you can have, musicians, tell mm. the story about HIV, you know, what you should know, what you should do. And it worked. You know, Levi's ended up being a very legitimate um, mouthpiece or spokes brand. I, I even convinced at the time the editor of Cosmopolitan, Vanessa Raffaele, to, to place a branded Levi's condom on the December edition of Cosmopolitan magazine. And inside, uh, you know, in the magazine, we then had various articles and editorials on HIV. You know, I, one of the reasons I wanted to start with that, Mike, was because I wondered how much that particular campaign and that work that you were doing shifted and changed who you are. I mean, you started out as, you know, you worked for Diageo, you were working for um, Ogilvy, mm -hmm. CompuTicket. There were all these massive... Um, really big companies that you were working in marketing for. And then you went on to this and it felt as though your life shifted and changed post yes. those, those projects. It did, Michelle. You know, at university, I was RAG chairman before I became SRC president. And with RAG, as you know, it's, it's, it's fundamentally rooted in, in, in charity work. Yeah. And I joined the board of Project Literacy, Adult Basic Education and Training. But what HIV did and my awareness of it was that it is a bit like COVID in the beginning. It was steeped in stigma. You know, it was viewed in America initially as a gay man's curse. And, and what, what I realized with HIV was that there, it, was, it was a pandemic. It was incredibly devastating in South Africa, uh, particularly in KwaZulu-Natal in, in, in the beginning. And people didn't know about it. And the best way to address stigma is through education, advocacy, and then behavior change. And I then realized that, you know, you can use marketing for good. And yeah. sometimes you, you can, and, and, and we were able to do that with, with the full endorsement of, of Levi Strauss out of San Francisco. We could use the Levi's brand as a strong voice for HIV uh, education at the time. And I have subsequently seen that brands who do things for good, whether it's in environment or, uh, you know, in health or even education, uh, it's just that much stronger. Yeah. We're going to go to a break and uh, we are talking to Mike Jaber. He's the founder of something called the Billy Bow Group, but he is someone who is working in a diversity of areas, looking at the idea of how we look at marketing, reimagining marketing and uh, its uh, ability to shift and change and possibly even do good. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM, destination unknown. 
We are chatting to Mike Jaber. Now, uh, there's no point in me every time we chat making <laughs> sure that I go through an extremely long CV. But I will say he's the founder of uh, the Billy Bow Group, which uh, he uses. And he founded that in 2017 to look at the value of uh, doing good and marketing. Now, Mike, you know, people may hear me say that and they might just roll their eyes. And because there is, of course, that uh, Friedman quote that the only job of a business is to create profit. Now, obviously, a lot of people think very differently to that now, and there are some very different conversations around what it means to create partnerships, also shared value and the like. I'm wondering uh, how you shifted and if you shifted and, you know, did you come to the space where you do believe that if we look at, for example, uh, amazing companies like Patagonia, what they're doing to make a difference, do you think that it's possible to do both, make a difference and make profit? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Michelle. You know, Levi Strauss is a great example of that. Patagonia is a great example of that. There are many, many companies who've done that. I think a fundamental to that philosophy is, is, is almost the human condition. You know, to what extent are we as humans able to and do we want to, uh, if we have the means, also create a little bit of space or help for others? You know, we, we, we live today in a very selfish society at, at face mm. value. But, but deep down, there, there is still... And, and it's, a, I believe it's an entrenched human condition, you know, over many, many centuries, that this need to protect and look after and, uh, and you wouldn't say it given what's happening in the world. So when you have a voice through a brand, uh, to be able to add to that, it doesn't necessarily mean for a second that you can't still sell your product. You know, I love still buying Levi's and wearing it as do millions of people around the world. But there's just a little something that says, you know, I bought Levi's. I know them as a company. I've Googled them. They actually do a lot of good as well. And so you get that sense of, I'll choose this brand because they do a little bit more. And therefore, the two go hand in hand. Yeah. And do you believe that uh, they can go hand in hand and they can grow as well? Yeah. Fantastic. They, okay, you're... they can. Yeah. Your, your second choice of song is, in fact, someone that was part of that campaign in a major way, Karen Zoid. Yes. Uh, doing a great version of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Why that song? Well, for two reasons. One is Karen's a, a, a dear friend of mine. You know, we met when we, we started doing the Levi's original music program. But Hallelujah was written by, by Leonard Cohen. It appeared on his album, uh, Various Positions, in 1984. And, and the essence of Hallelujah for me is, is this sort of struggle, searching for spirituality, but also about human desire. Um, it, it's a it's a deeply personal song as well, and I think particularly given the the mood in the world today, hmm. I, I think there yeah. is a deeper searching. People are asking why is all this nonsense happening? You know, what can we do? And you know, will it be okay? And Hallelujah for me represents one thing, and it's hope. You know, if we lose hope, we lose everything. And the, and Karen's voice, her interpretation of Hallelujah. I found an interesting bit of uh, um, trivia is that Hallelujah is one of the most covered songs in the history of music or modern music. That uh, I can believe. And, and yeah, you know, you've got oh. Jeff Buckley's version, but Karen does it justice. And, uh, you know, she just, her voice gives you that energy uh, and that sort of spiritual um, upliftment required to really you understand know, Mike, the meaning of the song. I, 
I want to just ask you something very quickly before we go into the song. You yes. mentioned that it gives us hope. And it's something we've been discussing here on the station, um, or certainly on my show, quite a bit, is how we use words and what words mean for us. So yes. we've been looking at the concept of what does resilience actually mean and how can resilience be best addressed. What does right. hope mean for you? I mean, in South Africa, there are so many people that are really, really struggling. And for someone to say, okay, you have to hope, what is that? I mean, because frankly... Sometimes it's hard to hope. It's incredibly hard. I have the privilege of working with, with a number of young uh, black entrepreneurs who literally have come from nothing. And what I've seen there personified is hope. You know, the hope that if I do this thing today, I might have a little bit of extra money to look after myself, look after my family. So, so hope isn't just a, a feeling. Hope is also an action. And, mm. But hope is an, as an energy. When I get up in the morning, I know it sounds tree, but you know, at 58, I'm, I, I live this now. So I get up and I say, what can I do today? I've got my own challenges. I might feel sick and I've got to pay tax, but there's something inside me that says, I've got hope that today will be better for something that I may do. It's a deeply personal thing. You know, and if, if, if hundreds or thousands more people feel like I do, then at least there's a bit of a groundswell. I, I can't contemplate the alternative. You know, if we lose all hope, then you know, as, as, as a human species, we just won't exist. So yeah. there's okay. that. So it is an, hope is an action and not just a feeling. With that, exactly. we go into Karin Zoid. Hmm. Fantastic choice, and that's the choice. Goosebumps. <laughs> Goosebumps, eh? Mike Jabeir is our guest today, and that's his choice. Mike, I want to um, just quickly you know if this conversation was a tree there would be obviously the main body of the conversation and we would talk to marketing etc then of course there'd be these little branches which we go off on but we we need to be careful we don't sort of end up in a rabbit hole somewhere because that's very possible as well so i want to take a slight deviation and a slight branch before we go to your first guest who is um the uh ceo of quicket so that's going to be an interesting conversation because just talk to how we buy tickets, how we go and attend events, and so much of what you do is about events. But I want to take a deviation, if I may, to your work on um, advisory boards and your job as a chairperson for the PSI Health Services of South Africa. And the reason I do is that you yes. put out a very interesting tweet this week about the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I wondered if you could tell us about the work that you do as PSI Health Services, as the chairperson of the board, but then also why you then put out this tweet with regards to that work. Uh, thanks, Michelle. That's that's a matter of, of deep importance. I, I think for, for starters, Roe v. Wade essentially was a ruling in the, in the 70s, which um, took away, uh, the you know, the, the, the at that time, the, the ban on abortion in most of the states. And it's been overturned now, as you know, by the Supreme Court. The the real impact of that, given that probably 26 or 27 states will now ban abortion, is that it will lead to unsafe abortion, which will lead to mm. uh, various health issues and deaths. The other issue is beyond the borders of, of America is that there's still a significant amount of American funding that goes into funding NGOs like ours to facilitate uh, safe abortion and, and uh, um, sexual reproductive health. 
so there's a knock-on effect and I, i've seen tweets you know i've seen the haters come back and say well what do you know and what does it mean to us it's american it's not it it, it 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 takes away two things the fundamental right for a person to make a choice on their own body especially in, the, in this case you know american females and secondly the the knock-on health effect is one that creates much more danger and mortality and so as PSI, Population Services International, which, by the way, has been going over 50 years. This is what we've been doing, uh, you know, in the world globally. Uh, it takes away a little bit of the strength that we have to be able to assist, particularly in, in uh, developing countries. You know, it's interesting what you say with regards to why this is important to us, not just uh, to America. It is important to us in South Africa because it talks to a very different um, world, actually. And Correct. I, I, I wonder if you could just talk about that concern and how we need to protect. We need to protect what we have here in South Africa and protect a constitution we, that does allow for that um, right as a woman. We do. That, that's, a, that's a very great uh, point that you make in a question, Michelle. You know, I, I've, I've been a, from... Uh, early in, in, in varsity, been a very uh, active, if you will, uh, or as a young political activist. And when we eventually became a, a full democracy, you know, I had the fortune of also meeting Mr. Mandela a few times. The second time I met him, I said, Madiba, we have this amazing constitution. We have one of the best, most robust constitutions in the world. And not only should we protect it, but we should recognize that it gives us, as South Africans, fundamental rights. And this constitution that we have is, is not only a, a moral compass for us, but it's also a North Star. And I know it sounds esoteric and philosophical, but it should for us as ordinary citizens be the scorecard against we you know, measure our, our leaders and, and our, our, our government. And if nothing else, because we still are a democracy, we should protect the right to be able to live under that constitution and use all of its benefits. You know, the, the irony is the, the, the Freedom Charter that was penned uh, originally by the ANC, you know, the, the principles of those are still evident today in most of the political parties' manifestos. And I find it so strange that, you know, we, we don't have unity, but we, yet we have the same manifestos around basic human rights and equality. The, the, the challenge, again, like hope, is how do we execute upon that? What do we do? What can an individual do to make sure that the Constitution remains sacred? Yeah. Gosh, that was a mouthful. Forgive me, I, I get no, very but passionate I, but I, about but I this. No, but I think it's, it's an absolutely critical one. And the reason I raise it was because I was interested to see you take a very strong stand with regards to the work that you do at PSI Health Services, but also yeah. ultimately in your own right as well. And I, I do agree that it's a ruling that was made by a male majority. And yeah. no woman anywhere should, as you wrote, ever be forced by law, political edict or religion to give birth against her will. Because, as you say, this will not be the end of abortion. It will be the end of safe abortion. And that's something... Exactly. You know, you know the, it, it, it's... Michelle, the, you know, I, we have, as, as PSI, and for me it was... I, I've been involved with PSI now for over 12 years. And I've seen what our teams do. And, and I've educated myself. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a male. I'm a father, a son, a husband. Um, and the, the, the reality here is that when uh, supposedly the leader of the free world has rulings like this, it has a knock-on effect. 
but, but the reality is, you know, any human should be able to make a choice uh, about his or her or, or their uh, bodies, you know, because your body and your health is, is the most fundamental of basic human rights. Yeah. And, and to tell it, and, and then the other answer that I have, which, which is rough, but it's true, you know, one of the reasons abortion is still important is when there is violent rape or incest. You know, when, when, when against a, a woman's world, she has been impregnated. Uh, yeah. so, so it is, it, it becomes philosophical and religious, but, it, but it, at the heart of it, it's still about the basic human right. So that's the branch that we moved off onto and it uh, flowered many fruits and shoots. We come back to the main body, which is um, your first guest is James Tan. Yes. He's the CEO of Quicket. Now, why? Why James so, Tag? <laughs> so, 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 apart from the fact that James is, is an amazing South African entrepreneur and leader and friend, uh, James, in a sense, of Quicket represents for me part of that hope I spoke of earlier, which is our entrepreneurial ecosystem in South Africa. We have countless South African entrepreneurs across a, a, wide, a wide cultural base who are building, if you will, uh, under the radar, businesses, strong businesses. And I've had the privilege of knowing James and his two co-founders for quite a while, uh, working with them now as chairperson. And, and Quicket, in a sense, is, is the new version or, or, the, or the technologically advanced version of allowing us to have access to tickets um, uh, easier, quicker, faster, cheaper. Um, and, and what I particularly like about uh, Quicket and admire and respect is that James, in COVID, when most ticketing agencies shut their doors, James took the leadership position to say we will not falter. He pivoted the business and he has not only pivoted it, he's also now built it into arguably South Africa's strongest ticketing agency. We now hold the most amount of inventory for shows, both online and offline in South Africa, bigger than CompuTicket. And that's wow. pretty cool for a, for a startup. <laughs> <laughs> James, that's pretty cool for a startup. Thanks for joining us. What the, yeah, that's quite quite the intro. Um, thank you, Mike. <laughs> it's great to be here, Michelle. Thank you very much for the opportunity to chat. James, I want to just jump in and ask, uh, you know, Mike mentions that during COVID you didn't shut down, which is kind of interesting because your whole job uh, or the entire app is based on the idea of performance and events. What did you do? Cheapers, uh, Michelle, the first thing we did was was figure out what are we going to do with with the thousands and thousands of people sitting with tickets to events that are now being cancelled. Um, the ver the very first thing we did was chat to as many event organisers as we could and say, well, what do you want to do and what are you, what are your thoughts? And these are people's livelihoods that depend on running events, and it's not just the event organisers, it's everybody throughout the event supply chain. Um, and so there's this, there's this natural inclination for everybody to say, well, let's go and get a refund, you know. Um, and the very first thing I did was jump out and say, well, hang on, you, you can go get your, your, your refund for 150 bucks for the, the, the game that you're going to go to. But also try to be mindful of the fact that this is an entire ecosystem of people that are now heavily impacted. So the very first thing mm -hmm. we did was say, guys, you have an absolute right to claim a refund. Absolutely. And we processed thousands and thousands of refunds. But it was also a case of saying, recognize the humanity of the people that are really, really impacted here. You can get your 150 bucks, bucks back, but this person might need that to actually survive throughout the, you know, the month. So that was the first thing. But then the very next thing we did was say, well, look around and say, okay, well, how do people 
people still connect. Connection is a vital part of our human experience um, and part of the social cohesion. And while well, everyone was separated, you know, there wasn't that, there wasn't happening. So we got straight to work uh, on building uh, a sort of a streaming system for people to be able to go live from their living room or wherever they I were. Saw Kyle, isolated. Kyle Shepard do that. I think I bought a, bought uh, a so ticket on Cricket for Kyle Shepard that way. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So Kyle, Kyle, Kyle was one of the many artists who took the opportunity and started uh, streaming from their, from their, from wherever they were pulled up. Yeah. Um, not only did we build a streaming system, and that the, the thing about the streaming system, which was so cool, was that we 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 recognised the urgency of how quickly it needed to be done. We had no expert, expertise in, in streaming, and one of the great surprises of it, and one of the sort of delights of the whole thing, was the, the, the comedy sector, where people normally have to book to go to a comedy show. They'll they'll kind of get everyone together and they'll go on an, on an evening, and that's it. Well, this was suddenly untapped comedy, just live comedy in your living room, as 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 many comedians as you can imagine. Just they got on, they got onto it, and I think that did a tremendous amount to for people's spirits. And it, it was a very important uh, building block. I, I remember Mark Lottering uh, already was two three months into the into the pandemic came out with this absolute cracker of a show, and that really set the pace for. Um, what we were going to do next. And, and we looked around and we saw, okay, Jesus, people are losing jobs. There are a way to, to kind of hustle and make money. So we, we brought out a fundraising system, um, which allowed anybody who had who needed to raise funds for, it doesn't really matter what cause, it was any, any kind of cause, you could go and set it up in five minutes and start you know, having a professional fundraising drive going for whatever your cause was. Um, so between that and the comedy, uh, it's, it, it, it was a it was a fantastic transformation. It was extremely tough. It was, it, it, I mean, it, there was a level of grit that was required from everybody involved, both those who were making the making the shows and 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 at the ticketers who were building technology that we had no real experience with either. Um, so I had nothing but the deepest admiration and respect for the people that I was working with, um, like my colleagues, and and for those who were brave enough to go out and actually run a run a live a live show. You know, it's very daunting. I remember, uh, I think it was Nick Rabinovitz, the comedian. He, he did yeah. his first show uh, from his living room. And I remember he was, it, it was a stressful time for him. But afterwards, he, he called us and thanked, thanked us and just said, you know, I think he crossed the threshold. And it was a wonderful experience for everybody involved. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's in, a, in a very brief nutshell kind of what happened in the, in the early months of the lockdown. So, you know, you raised something, and, and I'll put this to both of you, is this idea of the ecosystem. We were talking about communities a little bit earlier here on the show. And in many ways, what COVID did for someone like yourself, James, was that um, the uh, space between, with the liminal space between yourself and, for example, musicians, was maybe quite extended. That space just disappeared, and suddenly you were having to work very closely with the people who need tickets. So you might be a ticketer. They are the artists, but you start to realize how critical an ecosystem of values and of needs is uh, in society, not just to create and build an economy, but also to um, ensure that people are able to work with one another, that they are citizens. There's so much value in that. And I wonder if you did discover that. And Mike, I'll put that to you as Mm. well, that idea of the ecosystem. I'll start with you, James. Yeah, I mean, like I think, like I mentioned, it, it, events are a 
are an ecosystem. There are, there's an entire network of people from, you know, it starts with the event organizer, but it, it runs through then, you know, the, the venue, uh, obviously the artists, all the suppliers to the event. Um, and, 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 and there's a knock-on from that as well. I mean, those suppliers are suppliers. And so when something as as dramatic as, as the sort of shockwave happens, like a, a lockdown, you know, that ripples throughout huge parts of the society. Um, and so while everyone's coming to terms with with, with the lockdown uh, in their own personal capacity, professionally they're also impacted. And this is, you know, we I think for us it was, there were a lot of heart, heart-trenching conversations with some organizers and there's a number of people who've stopped doing events as a result of this, um, and, and, and understandably so. Um, but I, there was a lot of resilience that was shown as well and a lot of grit, and, and people came out and, and tried to, you know, keep things alive and make make it happen. Um, and I think that was vital for, for society as well. You know, as I touched on earlier, I think events are an absolutely critical part of any thriving society where, you know, people, people there's a sense of social cohesion that comes from it. And you can feel it in the, you know, I, I've been talking about this for a little while now, but I, I've, I've kind of noticed that, um, that there just seems to be a bit of tension that has built up throughout society over the last two and a half years. I'm sure everybody is, is aware of that. Um, and, you know, I think in their own small part, events have a, have a critical part to play in, in healing and mending a, a society mm. and an ecosystem. Um, Letting off steam as well. Yeah. yeah. Mike, your, your take, we do have to go to a break, but before we do, just sure. briefly, your take on, on the idea of, of what an ecosystem can be in society for, for the economy, but for more intrinsic values yeah. as well. Michelle, for me, it's simple. The ecosystem, particularly one that James is part of, is, is one of, of mutual reliance. You know, we're not, yeah. we're not uh, entrepreneurs don't wait for government to help them or communities. They actually get up and do stuff. And they have lots of like-minded individuals who have value to add to businesses. So that spirit of community in, in, in a business sense uh, amongst sometimes just individual entrepreneurs exists, and it's a strong one. And the second part to that, to my earlier point about hope, the entrepreneurial ecosystem allows entrepreneurs like James and others to say, well, we actually have a chance. You know, we have a chance to not only create jobs, but also to look after our families where the formal economy at the moment is taking you know, strength. And, and that gives me hope. Yeah. Do you see it uh, as, as more like a flat level uh, process as opposed to a hierarchical one? Very much flat level. Yes, like a pyramid. The bottom of our pyramid in South Africa is the foundation of, of the economy is, is small business, solopreneurs, uh, entrepreneurs, and, and especially in townships. I, yeah. I've been supporting a few young black entrepreneurs. There's a guy called uh, Baba Aya. He's got a little coffee shop in Cape Town, in Strand Street, so a hole in the wall, bought him a coffee machine, helped him with some basic marketing, and he now sustains his family, and he sells amazing coffee. So if you're in Strand Street, go and support Baba Aya. Baba Aya in Strand Street, guys, you know where to go to uh, spend some time, take some coffee as well. It's 10 to 10. We're going to go to a break and we'll go straight from there to Mike's second guest. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. Chatting to the one and only Mike Jaber, founder of Billy Bow Group. Mike, your second guest, Inyampini Mabunda, is the CEO uh, of the United States South Africa Business at United States Chamber of Commerce. Hmm. Okay. What, why, and how? (laughs) 
Well, he's not only that, Michelle. He's he's also the the CEO of General Electric for 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 Africa. I, I've known Yampini for many years. He's he's both a friend and a former colleague. In the late '90s, when I worked for Diageo, we were looking for a marketing manager for Smirnoff, and I saw the potential in Yampini. He was still, and he'll forgive me for this, you know, a youngster, but I saw the potential and the talent and brought him on board, and he took Smirnoff and built it into a powerhouse, and from there had a leadership journey. And what Nipini is doing now as a CEO, he's actually just written a book. He's, he's paying it forward. He's paying it back. He's mentoring um, uh, by teaching and sharing uh, with young leaders. Because Nipini and I both share the view, strong view, that we have a leadership deficit. You know, in, in a new, a young gener- younger generation, we need more leaders, active leaders. And Nipini is just that. He's an active leader who pays it forward. Nyumpini, I feel like I have to apologize. I'm looking very hard at your title here, and I see that I just missed. It's CEO of General Electric South Africa and chairman of the U.S. South Africa business business at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So my apologies. I kind of like um, collated all of those things into one. So I'm sorry about that. Nyumpini, you know, Mike mentioned something that – is always spoken about and it's this idea of mentorship and you know we go no we have to mentor we have to do this there are different ways of mentoring and I wonder what's the way that works best for you yeah thank you so much and uh, thanks for inviting me bro Mike and thanks Michelle um, really good to to be with you and firstly just to say I wouldn't be where I am today um, if it wasn't for Mike, who discovered me, I feel like a sports fan. <laughs> but when I was uh, when I was a tender, tender age of twenty uh, twenty three, if I remember quite well, and um, uh, and and I think the one thing about Mike is he's able to spot talent. I'm not surprised about the work that he's doing today in the entrepreneur space. And we're talking about him in my household recently uh, because he's also a colleague with my wife in one of the boards she's on. And we're like, he's got such an incredible eye for talent in whatever sphere. Uh, Mike, if I remember, you, you were involved in music as well yeah. and working yes. with musicians. And, and they, he, he, he can just spot talent. And, and I think coming back to mentorship, it's really, for me, it, it's about um, talking to someone who has traveled the path that you aspire to travel. Someone who wants to share some of the nuggets and help you not make the same mistakes. But mm. it is two ways. So the mentorship that works for me is where the mentor also gets something out of it. Uh, the mentor will give their time if it's a win-win relationship. So much as the mentee is going to get something, it needs to be worthwhile for the mentor. And, and, and lastly, there has to be chemistry and trust between the two so that there's full disclosure, open disclosure, because you get... Uh, more out of that relationship if you are authentic and open with each other. So, so okay, I'll put this question to both of you. Is mentorship um, sitting down over a coffee and saying, okay, I think this is a good idea, that's a bad idea, whatever, or is mentorship far more structured where you say, okay, fine, I need you to do this, go and do that, um, sort that out and then come back to me? Or is it sort of a mixture of both? Um, Mike, I'll start with you. It's a mixture of both. Informal mentorship is, is sort of advice and conversation. I, I like the one where you actually leave the person that you're mentoring 
with some tools for that person to be better at what they do or smart or, mm. or, or, you know, progress, do something that enhances both their own set of skills uh, and behaviors, but also in turn that person to grow. Uh, and in this case, particularly in, in Pini's case, is to become a stronger leader because stronger leaders by the very nature creates better teams and in turn creates a better society. Okay. Yeah, I fully agree. I fully agree with Mike. It, 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 you need both. Sometimes it's a quick coffee conversation or even after the effect, just immediate feedback and talk about it. It, it works in the moment because it can relate to what, what, what needs to be talked about. However, the structure and the, and, and the formal part of it talks to the role that the mentee has in driving the, the, the content of the conversation, in driving mm-hmm. the topic and come into the sessions prepared. So if, if the mentee is not clear about what they're trying to achieve and their level of preparation, then I don't think that would go as well. So the mentee needs to drive it, and that's where the structure is important. What do you want to talk about today? And what have you done since the last time? So what's the difference then, Yumpini, between a business coach and, and a mentor without saying, you know, we're not talking it like you, the fact that you pay a business coach, but what is the difference? For me, a mentor is someone who is doing what you would like to do. Um, you know, so hmm. so for instance, when I aspired to be a CEO many years ago, uh, I would speak to uh, people who were already in the CEO job, and I said, "Look, how did you get there? What does it take? What are some of the skills? What are some of the challenges?" And 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 if you aspire to 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 open a retail business and you find a successful retailer who is doing that. To really, because it can be direct tips and and showing you the way and sharing the wisdom and some of the mistakes. A coach doesn't need to be in the sphere of work that you're doing. A coach can yeah. be a, a professor or someone who's an educator or, or someone, you know, a spiritual leader, someone who's not directly in the line of work, but can get you into a reflective conversation, can challenge you to come up with solutions and think differently about what you're facing. And, and the same way that even in sports, uh, you know, some of the successful coaches have not necessarily played at the highest level the sport that they are coaching, but they are able to get the best in others. So so for me, that's, that's kind of uh, the, the difference. Okay, we're going to run out of time, which is, gives me my last question. And Yumpini, you actually set the question up. You said what it takes to be a CEO, and I'm intrigued. From both of you, what does it take? To be a CEO, I'll start with you, Nyumpini, and then uh, Mike. I'll go to you for the closure as well. Yeah, look, I mean, quickly, Michelle. There's many things, but for me, it's about leading leaders uh, because mm. you can't do this alone. So I think a CEO is someone who has to be great with people uh, in, to, to drive followership, but also how to lead leaders. It's also about impact and influence because there's so many stakeholders at times with different. Um, uh, and, 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 and different views and conflicting views, and how do you bring that that harmony and drive the negotiation to get things and, and people going forward? And I think the last part for me is really being about being trusted. So, mm-hmm. so, 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 so your 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 followers or having followership, but also your your, your integrity, your governance. It, it's really about being trusted to take big decisions and to have the vision that can take whatever you are CEO of forward, trusted by different stakeholders. I think that becomes quite important. So it's leading at a higher level of high impact 
and having followers that can trust you. Okay, Mike, unfortunately, you've got 30 seconds to answer. Nimpini I, I mentions, can do that. He mentions trust and he mentions, um, well, specifically trust, I think. What would you add to that? I, I would add to that saying that, you know, good leaders build a bridge between purpose and performance, and that bridge is built by people. And it's the ability that leaders have to inspire people to do that, build the same bridge to cross that divide. It's both an art and a science. Build a bridge between purpose and performance. Mike Jaber and your guests, thank you so much for joining us. It's 10 o'clock. Thanks, Michelle. It's time for the news. It's no longer good morning. It's now goodbye.